You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Matthew chapter 11 is where we are. We are making our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We've come to the 11th chapter. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 15. Matthew chapter 11. We read beginning with the 11th verse. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah, who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's ask our God's help for this next hour. Lord, our hearts are full of joy. We give you praise and thanks for all that we have already been blessed by in this worship service. And indeed, Lord, the time that preceded it, the study of your word throughout our ABF classes and the joy of fellowship as we see fellow believers and are able to speak with one another and exhort each other. Lord, these are tremendous gifts and we give you thanks for it all. I need your help, Lord, this next hour to explain the things that are in these verses, the things that you've taught me and We need your help to hear them. Would your Holy Spirit take his sword in hand this next hour and deal with our lives? Wherever, Lord, there are sheep wandering, would this be the day, Lord, when you bring them back? If there are people hearing me, and I'm sure there are, who are outside the sheepfold, they don't know you, Would you save today? Lord, where there are sheep in danger of wandering, a spiritual weakness at work in lives in this congregation, Lord, would you strengthen them today? Renew their focus and renew their faithfulness to the Lord Jesus? Lord, we all sense our weakness. We sing with all of our hearts, and yet we recognize how far we are from where we're going to be one day, Lord, would you sustain us in faith until that day when we see our Savior face to face? People discouraged who need encouragement, people full of joy who still, Lord, need to have their feet on the ground and be stable. Lord, would you help us in all these ways? We will thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Lord has given an answer regarding John the Baptist's doubts, his struggle in that prison. His disciples came asking Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus sends those disciples back with an answer that gave voice to what was going on in his ministry and matched up what was happening to the Old Testament scriptures that he knew John would recognize and in that way he would sustain his servant. He also praised John the Baptist. Following 
that encounter with John's disciples. He sends the disciples back, and then immediately Jesus begins to address the crowds, and he tells them exactly who John was and how they should regard him. And last Sunday evening, as a result, we had the opportunity to examine the character of John the Baptist. And we talked about what characterizes godly servants. We talked about John's humility and his stability and his loyalty and his faithfulness and his ruggedness. Those things have never changed. This still characterizes godly character, humility, stability, loyalty, faithfulness, ruggedness. But I said last Sunday evening that we needed to return to these verses because there was more here than I could unpack in one evening sermon. This is truly a difficult passage because there are subjects that are showing up here that we need answers for. The Bible supplies answers for that are somewhat complicated. I think the Bible's clear on these things, but it does take using our minds and comparing Scripture with Scripture to be able to get to the bottom of what our Lord is actually saying in a very few verses. Jesus makes two shocking statements in the 11th verse. But to understand how shocking they would be, we need to remember that his primary audience at this time is the nation of Israel. During our Lord's earthly ministry, there were Gentiles who came to him, there were Samaritans who came to him, but the primary audience when we hear Jesus in the Gospels is the nation Israel. He is speaking primarily to the Jewish people. And so when he says in verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, that would have been shocking. A Jewish audience would have asked, what about Moses? What about Abraham? What about David? What about Elijah? The greatest one who has ever lived? John the Baptist? Jesus says John was the greatest. Well, what qualifies John for that praise? That question figures into the rest of what we're going to read that Jesus said. We're going to understand in what sense John was the greatest. But then equally shocking, he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's shocking also, isn't it? That the very least, the very least servant in the kingdom of heaven If John is the greatest and the least in the kingdom is greater than John, then the least in the kingdom is greater than Moses and greater than Abraham and greater than David and greater than Elijah. In what sense is the least in the kingdom of heaven greater than these men? What is our Lord emphasizing? What He's emphasizing is the greatness of the kingdom. What He's emphasizing is the greatness of the era of fulfillment compared to the era of promise. Better to be on the side of fulfillment than to be the greatest servant on the side of promise. The greatness of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven realized. That's what Jesus is emphasizing. And John the Baptist represents the closing of one era of salvation history and the inauguration of of a new era, and it's an era that is superior, you and I have come to know something better. By the way, that is also the message of the book of Hebrews, isn't it? Again and again and again, something better, something better has arrived. That's what our Lord is teaching about. So we're going to consider these verses this morning under four headings. I'll just announce them as we come to them. 
But we're going to understand the, the greatness of the kingdom, the, the, the something better that the Lord has brought into being. First thing I want you to think about with me today is this, the kingdom expectations of the Jewish people. The kingdom expectations of the Jewish people. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, what exactly does he have in mind? And to understand that and to understand these verses, I think we have to be clear about what the Jewish people were expecting when they would hear Jesus talk about the kingdom of heaven. Now, a couple of things I want to say at the beginning that I feel like need to be said so, so that you won't misunderstand me. First of all, I want to be clear. I do not deny that there is both a now and not yet when it comes to the kingdom of God. There are some who believe that everything about the kingdom is still future, that in no sense have we come to know or experience anything having to do with the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It is all in the future. And there are others who believe that everything we will ever know about the kingdom, we know now. Now is the kingdom of heaven. There will be no literal thousand-year kingdom in the future will pass from this era into eternity. And I am one who stands, I guess you could say, in the middle of that because I believe the New Testament presents the kingdom of heaven to us in ways that indicate that certain aspects of the kingdom of heaven are already being experienced in this age, in the church age, and yet there is a literal kingdom still coming that we have not seen that will fulfill all promises made in the Old Testament concerning the kingdom. Let me talk about the first aspect of that for just a moment. There's a sense in which entrance into the kingdom of heaven is an immediate reality. When someone places his or her faith in the king, in the Lord Jesus Christ, they have entered the kingdom of heaven in its spiritual sense. I think the Bible's clear about this. I honestly don't know how anyone could deny this. For example, Colossians 1.13 says this, He has delivered us, writing to believers, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have redemption now. We have the forgiveness of our sins now. And we have been transferred now out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Every believer in this place, you are a kingdom citizen in that sense. The Bible tells us this. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are heaven citizens. Now, wherever you have a kingdom, you have to have three things. You have to have a king, you have to have subjects, and you have to have a realm. Well, we know who the king is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. We know who the subjects are, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right now, where is his realm? In the sense of the universal kingdom, ever since creation, God is sovereign over everything. That has never changed. But right now, in a unique way, the authority of Christ is being manifested on earth in a particular people, and that people is the church. I mean, you sense it, don't you? When we all come together here for worship, 
there is something supernatural that takes place. It is not just natural. The Lord meets with us. The Holy Spirit meets with us. The Lord is at work in this place. Christ's authority is acknowledged and he rules and reigns over his church. This means there are certain aspects of the new covenant, which we already know. These are blessings that belong to the kingdom of heaven, the permanent indwelling of God's spirit. This is something new. The Old Testament saints did not know that. Jesus, speaking to his disciples of the Holy Spirit, says that right now he was with them, but one day he would be in them. We know the indwelling of the Spirit of God. The moment every one of you who is converted was saved, the Spirit of God took up residence in your life. And he is with you permanently. In fact, he is the first fruits. He is the down payment, as it were. He is the first taste of a kingdom inheritance. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, when you did this, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We have an inheritance. It is held in reserve for us. It belongs to us. We belong to it. But we've not yet received it all. And the Spirit of God indwelling our lives, He is the guarantee that we will indeed receive everything that Jesus died to give us. The authority in the church to bind and loose is the authority to Bind what God has bound and to loose what God has loosed. And the Bible makes clear that is kingdom authority. Matthew 16, 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the amazing and sobering reality of the local church. That as the church functions, as the church was meant to function, I'm thinking specifically, for example, of church discipline. When you have a professing believer who comes under discipline and they walk through the steps of discipline and one day, sadly, through rejection of God's grace and rejection of God's mercy and rejection of the opportunity to repent, they have to be put out of the church. The sentence, as it were, that has been rendered is God's own sentence. He has worked in and through his church in a way that his kingdom is on display by the obedient choices that his people have made. Is that not amazing? So in some sense, we know the kingdom now. The same can be said of the new covenant. We now live in the new covenant, under the new covenant, ratified by the blood of Jesus. As we partake of the Lord's table, we hear our Lord say that what we partake of in the symbolic picture of his blood is the blood of the new covenant And yet you read the new covenant promises and you recognize there are elements 
of the new covenant promises that we don't know yet. There's a now, but not yet. Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And I will just say simply and briefly, there are elements of the new covenant promise that involve an outpouring of salvation upon ethnic Israel. There's still a great day of salvation for the Jewish people coming. Romans 9 through 11 makes that clear. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. That's a conditional covenant, but the new covenant's not conditional. This is something God's going to do regardless of what's happening in the nation of Israel. He's going to bring this to pass. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I love the testimony this morning when Talitha says God has given her a heart of flesh. That's a new covenant reality. And the Lord does it in each one of us when He saves us. He takes away the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, puts the desire for His law, for His Word, in our hearts. We live the Christian life from the inside out, don't we? We, we have desires that were birthed in us the day the Lord saved us. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I'll just briefly say this. This is why the church pictures this new covenant reality because everyone who belongs to a local church is to be regenerate. We, we should be able to say to one another in the Lord's church, we all know the Lord. We all know Him. He's brought us into the knowledge of Himself. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon, and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel... Cease from being a nation before me forever. Does God have a plan for the nation Israel? He does. He says the created order will go out of existence before that word falls to the ground impotent. Yes, he has a plan for a redeemed, regenerate nation in the kingdom that's coming. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. He's clearly talking about the nation and their disobedience. He says, I'm not done with them. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill Garib, and shall then turn to Goa, the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. 
And so when you think about the many promises that God made to the nation Israel, land promises, a royalty promise, the promise of peace and prosperity on the earth. I loved seeing this morning about the waves roaring in their testimony to the glory of God, but you do recognize right now the voice of creation that gives praise to God is at the same time groaning for the day of its liberation. We live in a world under a curse, which means we recognize this is not heaven. And we long for the day when in our own bodies the groaning stops. Our battle with sin is over. The curse is lifted. Promises of the transformation of the earth, you find them throughout the Old Testament. The promise of justice, resurrection unto everlasting life. You see, see, these elements we don't yet know. So while we know the kingdom in a spiritual sense, we don't know the kingdom in its physical sense. But it's coming. And the New Testament confirms that. 2 Timothy 4.18, Paul writes, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. Wait a second. Paul, you mean you're not already in it? Not in this sense He's not. He will, do, he will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is still looking for a kingdom. 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by His appearing and His kingdom. Ah, when will this kingdom come? When Christ returns. When He comes again, He will usher in this kingdom. And so we're able to charge, in Paul's case with Timothy, able to charge a young pastor, preacher, you be faithful with these things you've been entrusted with, and I'm charging you to preach the Word of God in light of the fact your King is returning. And when He comes, the kingdom is coming with Him. You be faithful. Just as I'm amazed that anyone can deny that we know a spiritual aspect of the kingdom now, given the statement of Colossians 1.13 and other verses, I'm also amazed that people deny that there's a kingdom still coming, a literal kingdom on the earth, because even after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and just prior to his ascension, do you know he spent 40 days talking to his disciples about the kingdom? And after that kind of conversation, what was their expectation? What are they looking for? Open your Bible to Acts chapter 1. I want you to look there with me. Acts chapter 1 verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. I want you to wait for the gift of the Spirit of God. That's a new covenant blessing. But he does not mean by that. That is the full fulfillment of all kingdom promise. The birthing of the church. No, because when they ask the question, he talks about seasons and times. And the Father has fixed these things by his own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They are still looking for a kingdom after his resurrection, after 40 days of discussion. And they still associate that kingdom with the promises made to the nation of Israel. And so, we are living in an era where we know certain kingdom realities, certain new covenant blessings, but we are waiting for the full completion of everything God has promised. We have met with an inauguration, as it were, but we've not yet met with the consummation of every kingdom promise. So I'm someone who believes in maintaining a distinction between Israel and the church. And I believe that God will fulfill specific promises made to the nation Israel, all requiring salvation. The Israel that exists in the kingdom as the kingdom begins will be a saved Israel. And yet I do not deny that there are aspects of the kingdom being experienced right now in the church age and that the rule of Christ, the authority of Christ, the kingly title and character and role of Christ is being expressed in His church on the earth even now. I mean, you do know the millennial kingdom, every believer will be there, Jew and Gentile. So to say that God has a special fulfillment to promises made to the nation of Israel is not to say that you and I will be second-rate kingdom citizens. It is to say that every promise God has made regarding the nations, including the nation Israel, will be fulfilled in that kingdom, and that still is in the future. Second thing I want to make clear is that I do not deny that Jesus at times spoke in ways about these things that transcended the understanding of his hearers. Jesus, including the kingdom, Jesus spoke about all sorts of subjects in a way in which he knew what he was saying they were not yet ready to process. For example, in John 13, verse 3, the Bible says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. I'm doing something with you, Peter, right now. I know you don't understand it, but one day, one day you will. John 14, 25, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. I am teaching you things now that you won't be able to fully process until the Spirit of God brings these things to your remembrance. And then you'll understand and remember the things that I said to you while I was with you. 
So we're going to read things in the Gospels that Jesus says concerning the kingdom that the people he was speaking to didn't understand. But having acknowledged that, here's what I'm not saying by that acknowledgement. I'm not saying that Jesus was using words where his meaning was different than his words. See, there's a difference between saying that Jesus taught things that went beyond the hearer's ability to grasp versus saying Jesus, his words can be spiritualized. It's what many people do with the words of Jesus and the words of the Old Testament. They spiritualize them as though what the words say is not what they mean. There's a meaning, you see, a spiritual meaning that is not found in the language used. And I resist that strongly because if the meaning of Scripture is not found in the words of Scripture, if the meaning of Scripture is not found in the language of Scripture, then nobody in this room could ever, with any kind of authority, say what God has given us to believe. We would all be left to some sort of Gnostic kind of process going on in our hearts where you see one thing and I see another thing and you see one thing in the words and I see another thing in the words and who is to say whether what you see is authoritative or what I see is authoritative? No, God has chosen to give us His truth in language for a reason. The Bible means what it says. And you believe what it says, and you're going to be on safe ground. And so when Jesus was communicating, he's communicating in straightforward terms. The words meant what he said. Now, those words would come into clearer focus with additional revelation and with the completion of what he came to accomplish. Now I can see what he came to do, you see. I mean, as he's talking about his death, his own disciples don't fully grasp what that means until after his death and his resurrection. Ah, that's what he was talking about. This was the purpose. But it's not as though the words didn't mean what he said when he said them. They just had a firmer grasp on those words with additional revelation, additional light, the passage of time, the completion of what Jesus came to do. All right, now why am I mentioning these two things? Well, because... When Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, in this context, he is talking about what the Jewish people could have understood <clears throat> if they had the ears to hear it. In other words, he's not talking about mysteries that would be revealed later on down the road in the New Testament revelation. He is talking about what has been leading up to his time, his day, his messenger. Which, by the way, is why he says what he says in verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. John stands at the end of an era of kingdom revelation. He also stands at the beginning of a new era of kingdom fulfillment. He is a transitional figure like no one who has ever lived before. Which is why Jesus is able to talk about his singular greatness. Now, I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. Before we finish this point, let me just mention one thing, just as a side note. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven 32 times. He speaks of the kingdom of God four times. Matthew is the only place where you find this language, kingdom of heaven. 
So some have tried to draw a distinction between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. I want you to know they mean the same thing. They are synonymous. And Matthew 19, verses 23 and 24 makes that unmistakable. Listen to this. The terms are used interchangeably. Matthew 19, verse 23, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Same kingdom. It's tough for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's almost impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Same kingdom. No difference. And so Jesus is talking about the messianic expectations of the Jewish people. This is the audience he's speaking to. He is talking to them about what they've received revelation about up to this point. The law and the prophets until John, they've been testifying to you about this. And now here we are. So the kingdom expectations of the Jewish people. Second point, the kingdom blessings of the new covenant. Why is it important to understand he's talking about what has been revealed in the Old Testament? Because it helps us understand John's greatness and it helps us to understand the violence that Jesus talks about in verse 12. First, let's deal with the greatness. In what sense is John greater than anyone who ever lived up to his time? Yes, John was great from the standpoint of character. There is no denying that. We dealt with that last Sunday evening. And it is true to say, I heard MacArthur say this recently, that true greatness is when you have character matched up with calling. When you have someone who has a calling and they faithfully fulfill it with godly character, that's greatness. And I agree with that. And in John's case, you have that. What a role he was given. What a privilege he was given. And what a godly servant he was as he carried out his calling. I'm not denying that. But I think what Jesus is talking about in verse 11 is not John personally. It is John positionally. He is the greatest man who's ever lived up to that time because of his role. Because of his role and because of his message. In the most unambiguous way ever, John is talking about the kingdom of heaven. See, what do you mean? Well, I mean, up to this time, up until John, it was the kingdom of heaven is coming. The kingdom of heaven is coming. The king is coming. The king is coming. Now you have John the Baptist. What does he say? It is here. He is here. Oh, by the way, behold him. That's the one who's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No prophet had ever been able to talk about the Messiah in those terms. Everything up until John was anticipatory. It was, wait, 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 wait. John says, it's here. The kingdom of God is near you as near as the king himself. The king has arrived. And that was an amazing new thing in the world. The world had never seen anything like this before. D.A. Carson says he was the greatest of the prophets because he pointed most unambiguously to Jesus. Nevertheless, even the least in the kingdom is greater yet 
because living after the crucial revelatory and eschatological events have occurred, he or she points to Jesus still more unambiguously than John the Baptist. I'll talk about that more in just a moment. R.T. France says this, John is thus seen in his capacity as the forerunner, as standing outside the kingdom of heaven. I want to just stop there. This is why I said I think it's important to understand the kingdom in the terms the people of God, the nation of Israel, have been expecting from the Old Testament. Because though John is greater than anyone before him, do you notice the least in the kingdom is greater than John? Where does that place John? He's not in the kingdom, is he? He's still outside the kingdom. Now, this is a man who has believed in Jesus. This is a man who has said, there's the Lamb of God. This is a man filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, yet he is still not in the kingdom. He precedes it. He points to it. It's not here yet in the sense that Jesus is talking about. So I think what Jesus primarily has in mind here is that physical representation of the kingdom, the thousand-year reign. John is before it. He announces it. That means if you're going to receive John's message, you receive Jesus as that promised king. France says of John the Baptist, he's standing outside the kingdom of heaven. He's the last of the old order. As the subsequent identification with Elijah will make clear. In verse 12, his days are seen as the time when God's kingdom begins to be a reality, but his own place is rather with the Old Testament. So... John's greatness has to do with his role, has to do with his message. By the way, isn't this so helpful for us to think about our desire for greatness? I mean, do you want to be greatly used of the Lord? You know, I think about the young men in the seminary, the young men getting ready for ministry, and you think about, here you are young, your whole life's ahead of you if Jesus tarries, your whole ministry's ahead of you, And I know it's in the heart of every godly young man to say, I want the Lord to use me enormously. I want the Lord to use me to the greatest degree possible. Well, listen, true greatness is in association with the Son of God. Greatness is defined here as unambiguous witness to Jesus. If you want to be great, then live a life and declare the message that says, look at Christ. See him. That's greatness. That's what we just sang about before I got up to preach. Look at Jesus. See Jesus. This is what we should all want by the lives that we live, by the marriages that we have, by the homes in which our children are raised, by the churches that exist. Are we saying to this world, look at the Son of God? That's greatness. Unambiguously point to Jesus. So greatness with respect to John. What about greatness with respect to the least in the kingdom of heaven? Verse 11, yet the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. In what sense? In the sense that now you and I have more revelation, more light. Jesus has come and he lived and he died and he was raised. It's been accomplished. So with more clarity and specificity, we point to Jesus today than John was able to do. The very least in the kingdom of heaven has more light, more understanding, able to speak with more clarity about Christ. John's doubts in prison testified to that, didn't they? 
I mean, even with the supernatural revelation he had concerning Jesus, he's still asking, are you the one or should we look for another? He still struggles with doubt. You and I know that Jesus came and lived and died and was raised. In that sense, there's something greater. But I do now want to include what we know from the rest of the New Testament for just a moment and say there's another sense in which what you and I experience is greater, and that has to do with those new covenant blessings we talked about. We do know the permanent indwelling of the Spirit of God. We do know with clarity what the future holds in a way that Old Testament saints didn't have as much light. There's so much that you and I know on this side of salvation history, that this side of the cross that Old Testament saints never were able to enjoy. And that is greatly preferable. Let me try to illustrate this. Do you ever find yourself thinking, I wish I could go back to some of those Old Testament events? Oh, to be there when the Red Sea was parted. Oh, to be there, just name it, when the axe head floated, whatever the case may be, when Jonah was swallowed by the fish. If I could just have seen it. Well, do you understand? They longed for the day you're in. They longed for the day when the Messiah would arrive. Understand your privilege. Understand your blessing. And one day when the kingdom does arrive, and John the Baptist, by the way, will be in it, we will all experience what all the saints throughout all history have been longing for. And that's a good test for us this morning. Are we longing for it? I mean, are we satisfied living in a world under a curse? Or are we longing for what the whole creation groans for? Do we ourselves groan for that day? Thankful, yes. Blessed, yes. Joyful Lord's days, yes. But this isn't heaven. Are we longing for the kingdom that's coming? Brings me to my third point, that is the kingdom resistance of the Jewish people. Their kingdom expectations the blessings of the new covenant that are known in the kingdom. But now what about the violence? And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. I mentioned last week, there's an issue here. Beatsitize the word, suffers violence. Suffers violence. And there's the choice to be made. Do you take that verb in a middle voice sense or a passive voice sense. If it's passive, then it's receiving violence. The kingdom of heaven is under attack. If it's middle voice, then it's advancing forcefully. And I mentioned there's, there's an element of truth in both because in Luke 16, the Bible speaks of people pressing into the kingdom. There is a sense in which as Christ was being presented and the good news of the kingdom was being preached and the gospel of salvation was going forth to, to embrace Jesus at that time, as Messiah meant suffering and still does to this day. So there's a ruggedness to, to the faith that God grants and a willingness to suffer for Christ. But I think in this context, you have to take this as a passive voice use. I think what he's saying is the kingdom of heaven is suffering violence. And I say that based upon context. Because he first talks about John the Baptist and what the people expected. This is a man now in prison. And then he talks about this violence in verse 12. But as you go beyond verse 15, 
We'll see this tonight. What do you see in verses 16 through 19? You see a generation of people who are stubborn in their unbelief. And then when you come to verse 20, what do you see? You see a denouncement of cities in which most of Christ's miracles were done, but they did not repent. And so you have this series of woes being pronounced against unbelief. And so what I believe our Lord is talking about in verse 12 is a violence being suffered by the kingdom of heaven, being carried out by people who don't believe. And it began with John. I mean, when John comes on the scene and he begins to preach this message of repentance and he points to Jesus of Nazareth as the Lamb of God from the time when he's saying to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you're a brood of vipers. I mean, he's telling the truth. It's like he stirred a hornet's nest. And you go on through the Gospels and it's going to become more and more intense until the messenger's beheaded and the king is crucified. The kingdom is suffering violence. In two ways, by shutting it out and by attempting to co-opt it, by shutting it out, by denying it, by outright rejection, and by trying to hijack it. In both ways, it's suffering. Jesus will say in Matthew 23, verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. John pointed to me, I am here, the kingdom is in my presence, and you are shutting the door in people's faces. You deny and reject what has come. But also there were people, as you know, trying to co-opt it. John 6, 14 and 15, when the people saw the sign that he had done, the feeding of the multitudes, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. People who didn't understand the kingdom, didn't understand Jesus as king, they just understood their bellies were full, and here's someone who performs miracles, let's make him king. Trying to co-opt and pervert the kingdom. So that's how I understand the violence of verse 12. You have kingdom expectations, Kingdom blessings preferable to be on this side of fulfillment than the era of promise. Better to be on the side of fulfillment. And then as the kingdom has arrived, John's doing his work. Jesus is pointed to you have this violence against the kingdom. This gets to my fourth point, last point. The kingdom blessings that are forfeited. And this gets to the very curious statement that Jesus makes In verse 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah, who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We have the Old Testament witness that leads to John. And that witness identifies what John has come to do. Read Malachi 2. Read Malachi 4. You'll see reference to the Elijah who is to come before the great day of the Lord. 
So John's own role has been identified in the law and the prophets up until John. We should know who he is. What does it mean, the Elijah who was to come? What does Malachi 2 mean in Malachi 4? Well, it doesn't mean a resurrected Elijah, a reincarnated Elijah. It just means someone, as John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was told in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, someone who's going to come in the spirit of Elijah. He's going to be like Elijah. And Jesus, in some sense, is saying, but you have to receive John as such. Are you willing to accept it? That John is the Elijah who was to come. He is, if you're willing to accept it. There seems to be contingency in this. If you receive him as this Elijah, he serves in that way, in that final sense. But if you do not receive him, there will still be an Elijah in the future. Yes, he still has served to announce me. He's my forerunner. But there's still something else in the future. John MacArthur wrote this, Jesus' point was that if the Jews received John's message as God's message and received the Messiah he proclaimed, he would indeed be the Elijah spoken of by Malachi. But if they refused the king and his kingdom, another Elijah-like prophet would be sent in the future. Because Israel did not accept the message of John the Baptist, John could not be Elijah and the kingdom could not be established. Another prophet like Elijah is therefore still yet to come perhaps as one of the two witnesses of Revelation 11, 1 through 19. This seems to make sense of some of the other statements we have, doesn't it? I mean, when they asked John, we heard it read in the Scripture reading this morning, when they asked John, are you Elijah, what did he say? He said, no. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Jesus, in Matthew 17, will go on to tell us the Jews rejected their Elijah. Matthew 17, verse 9, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, this is the Mount of Transfiguration, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. That's future. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Elijah has come. Elijah is to come. And will restore all things. What I'm saying to you is this. I believe what you have throughout the gospel records, Jesus giving voice to it here, is that John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus' presence on this earth represented a real offer of the kingdom to the nation Israel. And they rejected the messenger and rejected the king. And as a result, forfeited those blessings, which has ushered in the church age and will mean enormous riches for, for Gentiles 
Until the day that the Lord Jesus returns from heaven, there's a great outpouring of salvation upon the nation, ethnic Israel, and the kingdom is ushered in when the king comes again. You say, well, wait a second now. If there was a real offer made to the kingdom, what if they had accepted the king? What about the cross? What about the resurrection? I don't know how, but it would have happened. There's no forgiveness of our sins apart from the death of Jesus on that tree. And by the way, the church age is not plan B, it's plan A. It was God's plan from all eternity. Did God know? In fact, did he decree that they would reject this offer of the kingdom? Yes. What we're talking about, listen, this is important. What we're talking about is that mystery that we always struggle with when it comes to divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And this is not the only place where we face that struggle, is it? By the way, before I talk about that, listen to this statement in Luke 19, verse 41. This has to do with our Lord's attitude toward Jerusalem. And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Your king came and it would have meant peace, but you've rejected him. And as a result, there's going to be great destruction and great judgment. This ongoing tension between divine sovereignty, the eternal decrees of God, and human responsibility within those eternal decrees. Why did God form Lucifer knowing that he would be a devil? Why did God form humanity knowing that he would fall? Why didn't he just make man in such a way that he couldn't fall? You do understand on the other side of resurrection, when we get into eternity, we will never again be subject to a fall. In that way, our position will be superior to Adam's. Adam was in a paradise, yes, but he was still subject to a fall. We're going to be in an everlasting paradise with no possibility of a fall. Praise be to God. And there are angels that fell, but there were elect angels. Elect angels chosen for what? For preservation. They never fell. God has the ability to do that. So why did he form humanity knowing he would fall? How can the offer of the gospel be sincere if salvation is predetermined by God? How can we sincerely preach the gospel to people knowing that God has chosen those who will be saved? How can your faith be sincere if God had to grant it to you? On and on the questions come. And for every question, God's word supplies answers, but then we have more questions. We're never satisfied. The tension always exists, which is why eventually, read Romans 9, God says, enough, because I told you so. Because I told you so. That's why it is the way it is. Because I told you so. And this is the question, can our hearts rest in the sovereignty of God. Was John 
a fulfillment of Malachi 2 and 4? Yes, if they were willing to accept it. Was the king truly presented to them? Was there a time of visitation? Yes, but they didn't recognize it. And in not recognizing the forerunner and the king, and in beheading the forerunner and crucifying the king, they were absolutely responsible for their wickedness, and yet the eternal decrees of God were being fulfilled. And Peter preached this on the day of Pentecost, didn't he? Acts 2.22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There it is. You crucified him. You killed him. It was lawlessness at work. But he was delivered up by his father for the salvation of his people. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Divine sovereignty. Human responsibility. God's sovereignty includes reference to human responsibility. It's all baked in. God's sovereignty has already taken into account all the choices we would make, all the decisions we would make, all that we would do with the truth or not do with the truth. It's already there in His eternal decrees. Yet His sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. Every one of you who have sat under the gospel for so many years, if you die without Christ, you're responsible for dying without Christ. You rejected the message. You said no to the gospel. And so God's sovereignty creates mystery regarding human responsibility. Yet God's sovereignty will not account to human reasoning. He is so kind to answer many of our questions, but there are some of our questions He refuses to answer. He is God and we are not. And so human reasoning must rest in God's sovereignty. I don't know about you. I think I know about you, but I know about me. I am more than willing to be like a child. God, just tell me what you say, and that's what I want to believe, because it's true. And just because I can't get my mind around it doesn't affect the truth one iota. It's truth when I understand it. It's truth when I don't understand it. Just tell me what the truth is. So here's where I finish. Are you in the kingdom? Will you be in the kingdom? All those who will be in the kingdom future are entering the kingdom now in its spiritual sense. And there's only one way in. It's as narrow as Jesus. And the way is hard. It's a rugged way. Are you in the kingdom? Have you received Jesus as Lord and Savior? Will you one day be in that kingdom where the earth is transformed? Will you'll know a paradise like nothing you've ever seen? Do you long for it? Do you believe John's witness? When he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, have you believed Him? Do you trust in Christ? Whether you can recognize it or not, for some of you today is a day of visitation. 
you have heard the gospel. Jesus is the only Savior given to men. Trust in Him and you will live forever. Reject Him and you will die forever. Do you recognize it? Will you receive Him as your King? And the church would say, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your greatness that has mercy upon our smallness. Thank you for giving us the truth. Your word is truth. Thank you for your saving power, taking people out of the domain of darkness, bringing them into the kingdom of your dear Son even now, even as we heard testimonies this morning of two precious people whom you saved. And every one of us who knows Jesus, Lord, we rejoice in their testimony because it's ours. We once were blind, but now we see. We once were dead, but now we live. We once were slaves, but now we're free. We once had no hope, but now our hope is Christ. And all the details of your promises and all the details of your plans, you will fulfill without one part of it falling to the ground. So that in the end, we will all stand and glory in you. That's greatness, to bear witness to you, to bear witness to the glory of your Son. Bless this word to our hearts for salvation and for sanctification. We ask in Jesus' name.